in three, two, one. Looking to give yourself an edge over the competition? We all know that relationship building is the key to success in life and business. It's who you know, not what you know, that can often make the difference. To help us understand what they should teach you at Harvard Business School and how to professionally schmooze is author and speaker, Cody Lowry. Hey, Cody, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I had a chance to read your book, and the book is entitled Schmooze, What They Should Teach You at Harvard Business School, and love what you've written in the book. Well, you got a lot of memories in there, a lot of good stories, but you've got some practical tips for our listeners and people who can understand what the art of schmooze is, but let's get into it. First of all, let's define schmooze the way you define it, because I know you have your own definition, and then I want to ask you how you got there. So let's define schmooze just for our listeners, because we got five generations of listeners here on the show, and I want to make sure they understand what schmooze actually means. Yeah, well, first First and foremost, schmooze is a Yiddish word, comes from the word schmooze, which means to chat idly in a friendly or persuasive manner so as to gain favor and business or connections. And what I've done in the book, and I've lived the schmooze life since I was 11 years old, but it's more than that. It's about hearkening back to the days we looked people in the eye, we greeted them with a smile. Our word was our bond and our relevancy wasn't based on likes and looks on social. So I've endeavored to change the definition of the word schmooze, and it doesn't really have that bad connotation now. It's about a winning smile, making a great first impression, being kind to all regardless of class, persistence. My book could easily have been called Persistence because almost every chapter is loaded with me, you know, staying in the game. Again, it's about building relationships. It's about looking out after the little guy. And I think uh, probably more importantly, it's about being genuine, which is typically not a word you associate with schmooze. You're genuine and authentic. Well, it's the name of your book. It's your brand. Why are you Mr. Schmooze? And where does that come from? Because I know you've got that updated definition that you just gave us, and it is about genuine. Did that evolve from your work? And I know back in the 80s, you built a multi-million dollar ad agency in the Florida area, I think starting in 1984, that you sold late into... Very good, Michael. You did your homework. 2015 or so. Yeah, exactly. So how did you get there and how did Schmooze come about? Well, you know, I've been schmoozing my whole life. Where did Mr. Schmooze come from? When I wrote the book, I needed a website domain. So I looked up Mr. Schmooze was available. I couldn't believe it because there's been other yeah, books. Good one. Schmooze. They charged me a king's ransom to get the website, but that's really how I got the name. But as far as schmoozing, yeah, I started uh, schmoozing early and you and I have already talked and you sold papers and I sold papers. And at age 11, I was the, the artful dodger in Fort Lauderdale, hawking my papers. Miami News, Miami News, sir, Miami News. I was selling the Miami Miami News Blue Street Edition. It is the third-ranked newspaper. It was the third-ranked newspaper down in South Florida. You had the Miami Herald. You had the yeah, number one Fort Lauderdale News. And then you had the Fish Wrapper, the Miami News. And so I was, I was always out there trying to sell the worst paper in the market. And all I wanted was a nickel. And Michael, if somebody walked by me and I'd say, Miami News, Miami News, Blue Street Edition, they could care less if it was a Blue Street Edition, right? And if they right. walked by, they didn't, they didn't buy. I'd say, sir, would you buy a paper if I told you where you got your shoes, what state you were born in, how many birthdays you've had? They turn around, they look down at me for a nickel, I'll bite. You got your shoes on your feet, you were born in the state of infancy, and you've only had one birthday the day you were born. 
So that's when I started schmoozing. And, and what I learned selling papers, Michael, been with me my whole life. I learned no doesn't necessarily mean no. I learned how to look out for the little guy. There's a great story in there about me trying to sell the last papers that I had of the day, 12 newspapers. It's about connecting with people. It's about networking. And the things that I learned selling newspapers, I'm still utilizing today. No, I think it's a good experience. And we did talk about that in our green room ahead of time. Selling newspapers was, boy, I remember selling it Friday night at a liquor store and 25 cent papers and you get a quarter for a tip. You could walk away with five bucks. I always had some cash in my pocket. Not always a lot of cash, but I always had some. And that was always a good experience. Where did you go after that? I think you went on to university. How did we evolve into marketing? Where did that come from? We haven't really told my story yet, but it's kind of an interesting one. The reason that I had to sell papers is our family was kind of down on their luck. Right. And within a seven year period, a seven mile radius, we moved 32 times. I always tell people my dad had a lot of talent. Paying the rent wasn't one of them. He had, um, he had a bit of a substance abuse issue as well, from what I understand. Yeah, they did. And yes, yeah, so it was difficult. St. Vincent de Paul was my uh, favorite saint because he always brought food Christmas. Christmas Day. Yeah. Growing up was difficult. And and so, I mean, I, it didn't get any better. I hitchhiked when I was in high school. We were about, I don't know, maybe seven miles. And I would go down 13th Street and then Federal Highway. And I'd, I'd actually hitchhike to school. I did manage to uh, step up a little bit. And I got a 55 Plymouth that used more oil than gasoline. But when I went to college, and I guess this is something that I'm most proud of because I'm the only one in our primary family that actually graduated from college. With that said, my grandfather was superintendent of schools in Detroit for 30 years. He uh, was the first president of Wayne State University. There's a high school, Frank Cody High School, named after him. But when I graduated from high school, I knew I wanted to go to college. I didn't have any money. I didn't have that parental checkbook. And so I literally worked my way through college. And when I graduated, all I wanted to do was find a job that would pay me $14,000 a year in advertising. And uh, so I can remember looking around for a, a position and I couldn't find anybody that wanted to hire me. So my brother was selling automobiles for a big automotive group down in South Florida called King Osmobile. And he said, why don't you try selling cars? And I said, are you kidding? I said, I just worked my way through college. I'm not going to sell cars. With that said, he snapped back at me. He says, well, you get a demo. I said, what's a demo? He said, a demo is a new car. I said, I get a new car? I said, yeah. I said, really? Everybody gets a new car? He said, yeah. So I thought, well, I'm going to sell some cars at least for the next three months so I can find something to do. It's a real funny story because I drove around town and I was going to decide what dealership I was going to work at. I'm not, not even thinking that maybe they didn't want me, right? Right. So I picked this brand new Chevrolet store and I got down to pennies and I noticed one thing about the salesmen, Michael, they were sharp dressers. And I went down to pennies. I didn't have a whole lot of money left in my pocket, but I bought a pair of baby blue pants and a white shirt and a and a paisley tie. And boy, I looked apart and I went into a Chevrolet dealership. It was guy, I can say the name. Guy ended up being a very good friend. Roger Whitley Chevrolet. And I walked up to the front desk and said, I'm here to apply for a job. And they said, oh, you have to go see Mr. Vandibo. He's the general manager. He's down at the end office. And so I went down to see Mr. Vandibo. And I, I walk in and Michael, I know some of your viewers and maybe you, you ever walk into a room and that chemistry just is not there. And yeah. I, I more, more than normal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah. I, said, I, I said, good morning, Mr. Vandebo. And I said, my name is Cody Lowry. I just graduated from the University of South Florida and I want to make the car business my life. 
Now I'm really schmoozing, right? Right. It was a a ball. I wanted to be there three months, make some money and get out. And so I'm telling him about all the wonderful things about me. And he looks up at me and he says, why don't you come back in about six months? He said, we already hired people. I couldn't believe he just said that. I hear him right. Did he really say, I'm not going to work here? I got up and sometimes you act on instinct. I looked down at him. I said, Mr. Vandebo, you just made the biggest mistake you've ever made because you have nobody out there in the showroom that I can't outsell. Thank you very much. I was so mad, so disappointed. I almost didn't make it down the ramp going out to my car. And there was a gentleman that was sitting in the office. His name is Manny Fernandez. And he was a character. He had a limp and bad eye and whatever. But he comes after me, Cody, Cody. He said, I ain't never seen anybody talk to Bucky that way. I said, Bucky just made a big mistake. Steak. You know, he said, well, call me back today around three. Let me see what I could do. So I call him back at three. He said, you start in the morning. I said, you're kidding. I said, no, you start in the morning. So I get there in the morning, same baby blue pants, same white shirt, same paisley tie. And I go up and I ask for Manny, who was the truck manager. And he doesn't come on till 12, but Mr. Vandebo is waiting for you, Mr. Lowry. So I go down to his office Good morning, Mr. Vandebo. He doesn't say a word. He's doing his paperwork. And so I sit down in a chair next to his desk and 15 minutes goes by. He hasn't said anything to me. And so I thought I'd break the ice. And I said, <laughs> uh, Mr. Vandebo, I said, do you have a training program? And now he grins from ear to ear. He almost can't believe I said that. Remembering the day before I kind of threatened him. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, let me ask you a question. He said, he said, can you figure out 4% sales tax? I said, yes, sir. I think I can figure that out. And then he screamed at me. Well, then get out on the point. Well, I didn't know what the point was, but I was pretty sure it was in his office. Right. I'm going to make this a little shorter than the story actually is. That month I became salesman of the month. I sold 22 and a half units wow. and I went on to become Bucky's best friend. That's awesome story. Now, in the Detroit area, in that time, you, I'm sure you ran into him, or Joe Girard was big in those days too, a predecessor to you maybe. Well, Joe Girard was the number one car salesman in the world. He left us about, I think about 10 years ago. He used to do a right. fair amount of speaking and uh, he had an incredible uh, business selling cars. And I mean, he'd sell 50 cars a month. Right. You know, if you look back and how he did it, and I never met the man. I've read his book and seen some of his videos, but it was all relationship-based. Just right. the basics of what we're talking about in Schmooze. Yeah, yeah. No, the foundation's there. And that's the point. There's the commonality. And schmoozing works in all kinds of industries, which is nice because it's all about the relationship. Now, your book, Schmooze, you know, what they should teach you at Harvard Business School, and I agree with you, it's not your regular self-help book. What sets it apart from all the other words that are out there that people could be reading? What makes yours different? To be very frank, it's not regurgitated internet, blah, blah, blah. It is somebody. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you're getting lessons learned and real stories from somebody who has actually walked the walk. Right. And I have walked the walk. I've had my ups and downs of sharing a quote with you earlier. Nobody is free of adversity. Nobody gets a, a hall pass, right? Right. And so in the book, I talk about a Japanese proverb, which is my fall down seven times, get up eight. It's something that fortunately I've taught my children and and it's something I really believe that nobody's on an easy street forever, right? Well, and if you choose that as a profession, and like I say, with the generation, some of it's a lost art as well, even just the art of the schmooze. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring Active Campaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? Active Campaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C, and B2B companies 
gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. ActiveCampaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose ActiveCampaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the ActiveCampaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred, How to Outsell the Competition. And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Cody Lowry. Now, at the end of the day, we're schmoozing to build relationships. And I know you believe that trust is the foundation of all relationships. Can we have a relationship without trust? Sure, but you'll always lose to one where trust exists, right? So how do we build trust quickly? How do we build rapport quickly? And in my mind, relationship building and selling go hand in hand. Can you be good at one, but without the other? You want the total package. And I'm glad you brought this up because I'm in the book, I talk about relationships and the secret sauce and building the relationship, getting the client to trust you, and then endeavoring to never, ever let them down. We have clients on the books that have been with us for over 35 years. I can't shake them, you know, they're right. there. And I'm their blankie, right? So yes, and your point about making relationships quickly in the first 30 seconds that you meet somebody, they're already making a value judgment about right you, away, where right they away. want to do yep. business, they don't want to do business. And I learned that almost instinctively, and it's something that has served me very well. I was asked to go to North Carolina, I had my own agency, and I was asked by a Toyota dealer to come up to the Grove Park Inn to speak to about 10 or 12 Toyota dealers in that particular area. And it was a great opportunity for me to get up and meet our primary focus in the agency was retail and specifically automotive. And so, yeah, so I took them up on it. I get up to the hotel and kind of race into the cocktail area and I start networking and I start building relationships. And it's not coming from that negative side of the schmooze definition. I'm genuinely interested in people and their background. And I dive deep. In the meantime, I have the opportunity to spend some quality time with eight or 10 of these guys. And then we're having dinner and one of the dealers looks at me and he said, well, who did you bring to the meeting? And I said, what me? <laughs> we're having dinner, right? He said, no. He said, tomorrow, the presentation. Well, Michael, they were having a major pitch for their business, which was multi-million dollars. There were four agencies that were invited. I was one of them. It was never explained to me anything more than, hey, Cody, come on, I'm have dinner with the dealers. And, you know, he, he left out a big, big part there, right? Right. Stachy, one of the largest agencies in the world, had the account. They were not invited for whatever reason. But I can remember going up to my room and I got to tell you, Michael, I was sitting there on the edge of the bed just thinking, you need to call these people, let them know you're not going to be there in the morning. And then the more I thought about it, I thought, well, you know what? I don't have a media buy, but I know our media strategy. I don't have any spec creative, but I know our creative strategy. I know the automobile business for sure, backwards right. and forwards, because my history in, in that segment. And uh, I thought, you know what? I'm going to give it the old 
college try and I'm going to pitch them in the morning. So I get there in the morning and it's a typical deal. I got the other three agencies there. They're in their Brooks Brothers suit. I still got a jacket that I wore the night before. They've got their media people. They have parting gifts for the dealers. And they're all their swag. Yeah, their swag, as it were. They're looking at me like, who is this guy? Is he kidding? I'm kind of discounting the fact that I'm even there. So little hint to any of your pitch people out there advertising or whatever it is. In our world, you either want to be first or you want to be last, right? Yeah. And so I was last. The other agencies go in. Nice thing about the dealer groups is these guys make a decision very quickly. You had an hour and then we'll call you back. And you just use a sizzle rule. If I remember the story from your book, all you had was a sizzle rule for a few minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I had my rail and that was as good as anybody's. Right. And then it was really hot. Everybody uh, goes before me and then I go in and I walk in. Mike was like oh, old home week. Cody, hey man, that was fun last night. And blah, blah, blah. Come see me yeah. when you're back in Fort Lauderdale or when I'm at, back in Fort Lauderdale, you know, and just going on and on. And, and I got up there and quite honestly, with that opening and the way I felt, I don't think the other agencies even had a chance. I pitched them. I thanked them. They all applauded and I left. And I remember this guy's name like it was yesterday, Joe Bertolami, Italian dealer. And he comes out. He was a treasure at the time. He says, Cody, the guys want to see you. I thought maybe I was going to get beat up or something. You know? And uh, right. so anyway, I go back in and I walk in, close the door. These guys all get up and applaud. You won the account. Nice. Well, let me tell you, I wouldn't have won that account if I didn't build relationships early. A lot of people think they, they need to know somebody for months or weeks or what have you. And I can remember uh, about two years ago, around there, three years ago, around there, when COVID just hit, the station out of Dallas called me and how should millennials interview on camera? And I said, number one, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So you can't be just getting out of bed. Your hair is all messed up. Right. But I said, you've got to know something about that employer, not just the business and what he does. Michael, I went in to see a dealer or a CEO of a company. I knew more about him than he probably did. I knew what school he went to. I knew the clubs he belonged to. I knew the charities. I knew all kinds of things about him to give me an opportunity to get on a common ground with him and then get him talking. Right. That's the lesson here too, Cody, is it's that preparation. You and I are cut from the same cloth. I prep every single call before I go and I know something. I know where they went to school, the highlights, and it may come up in conversation. It may not, but I have it. What are some of the tactical things that we can do when we say schmooze, like in chapter nine of your book, you talk about schmoozing from the podium. Most people hate public speaking. They have thing and you have a formula for doing that. Well, it's a learned skill and you write about it extensively in your book. So I think schmoozing is too. I think it's something they don't know how to schmooze. Like today, boys meet girls by swiping right. They don't know how to start a conversation. So to build trust quickly, to build credibility quickly, to build authority quickly, how would you do it? How do you do it? To your point, I think it's so important for people to learn how to get up in front of people. I think it's important to teach your children that. I think it's important if it sets, teach your grandchildren that, how to get up and and have confidence in front of people. That was one of the gifts that I got. And I probably, I can remember starting out pretty early doing imitations. And I can remember, hey, do Elvis Presley, do Ed Sullivan, do this person. So I was kind of a little hand 
am. And so it was natural for me to get up in front of people. And I would say that arming yourself with the ability and having that confidence to get up in front of people is so very, very important. And uh, it's a gift that won me and it's still winning me a lot of business. Yeah. Well, you have to be willing to have the courage to go out there because when we train salespeople and we train a lot of them, they, they won't try because they're scared of that rejection. And I'm going, well, what will be the outcome if you're rejected? Well, I don't get the deal. Okay. And if you don't make connection, what's the outcome? Well, I won't get the deal. And exactly. And that's why you've got nothing to lose. So to me, and I know you do this, you will talk to people at airports, you'll talk to the maintenance people, you'll talk to the food services. When I'm checking out grocery line, getting groceries, I talk to them and sometimes no one talks to them all day. And you're the only point of contact. And I find that's a great place to start for people is to go practice with absolute strangers where there's no risk of failure and ask them how they're doing. We all use our props. I know you do a lot of imitation. You know, what a lot of people don't know about you is you at one time in your life, you were doing stand-up comedy and you even tried out for SNL. And I mean, you had Carter down as an impressionist and we all did that. We had cartoon voices or whatever. For me, it was magic. And I learned magic early, like 12, 14. So I could go up to complete stranger and I'd say to him, Hey, check this out. I got to show you something. And I would just start with that. Hey, can I show you something? And then I'd start to show them. And I said, I'm trying to figure this out. And then I'd make the, the magic appear. And it's the patter we use. Patter was the verbiage, the, the words, and the words create things to happen. And people appreciate, they're attracted to it. And we tell people, just go out and practice. And I know you do this in so many ways. And so any other little tips as far as having that courage to actually, yeah. okay, where's a good place to start and how can I do that? Yeah, I think, like I said earlier, the book could have been called Persistence. And you mentioned Jimmy Carter, so I'm going to pivot here. I did do stand-up comedy, and my wife and I were on our way to Las Vegas, where it was my hope to open shows for for bigger acts. And But right. I hadn't been to New York yet. In fact, I was really raw at the time. I had some gigs, but I wanted to go to New York and see what that was all about. So I get to New York, and I'm staying at the glamorous YMCA by the United <laughs> Nations, which scared to death. But in any event, I went to the improv, which was big back then, Catch a Rising Star. I was only open two or three years. Actually, they invited me on stage at Catch a Rising Star. And it's a great story. But I think the real uh, story behind Saturday Night Live is persistence and how that served me. I, I can remember thinking, well, I got another 24 hours here. I said, maybe should I get a haircut? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just do a little window shopping. And then I go, I've got it. I'm going to audition for Saturday Night Live, not thinking that maybe they didn't want me, right? And so I I call uh, Rockefeller Center Saturday Night Live and get right through. And I did my homework. The guy's name who was head of talent, his name was John Head. I asked for John Head and guess what? John Head takes the call. And I said, Mr. Head, my name is Cody Lowry. I'm from Tampa, Florida. I'm a stand-up comedian. And I would love to audition for Saturday Night Live. And I got to tell you, I got something that you don't have. Rich Little doesn't even do him yet. And I said, Jimmy Carter might be our next president. And I do him better than anybody. And I'm funny and I'm selling myself. And he says, well, Cody, why don't you give me a call tomorrow around... 12 or whatever it was. We'll see if we can't do something. I didn't realize, you know, I got hung up with the phone. I was a stag. That was kind of a blow off. Right. Right. And so I call him the next day and not available. And I call him again. He's not available. And I call, he's not available. And I call and he's out to lunch and I call, he's with somebody and I call 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 and really wearing out the receptionist. And so that night I thought, well, you know what? This is for the advent of the cell phone. Maybe he's in the book. Well, guess what? He lived out in Long Island. He had a telephone number and I called it <laughs> and he answers and he was an English chap. So I knew it was him. Yeah. And he said, hello. I said, I said, Mr. Head, this is Cody Lowry. And he goes, 
there's a pause and he goes, you are amazing. And he sets up a time for me to come and see him in the, the next day. So I get up there and I got to tell you, I'm on the elevator going up at Rockefeller Center. And now I'm really getting nervous. I mean, who do you, I think I am auditioning for Saturday Night Live? Like I said, raw talent. And you think you're good enough for this? But I got to tell you, when the elevator door opened, there was a calmness that came over me like I felt I belonged. And I go up to the receptionist. She immediately takes me into a, a room with a, not really a, a stage but a platform. And she said, Mr. Head will be in a minute. And so here he comes and I'm just a really a nice uh, gentleman. And he comes in and he goes, show me your routine. What do you got? Well, at the time I had something that was very hot. It was a fast cell vasectomy, a do-it-yourself for $14.95, which, uh, you know, antiseptic gauze scalpel and while they last a wind butt from the Association of Voluntary Sterilization. So that was part of it. And then the rest was Jimmy Carter. Right. My name is Jimmy Carter. I'll tell the truth. If I tell a lie, I grow another tooth. Now, a lot of people think I'm prejudiced, come from the South. I want the American people to understand one thing. And it goes on and on and on. He wasn't rolling in the aisles, but he was grinning from ear to ear. And I could tell that I had connected with him. And he said, listen, I want two more people to see this. So two guys come in. I was never formally introduced to either one of my, imagine one of them was Michael's and uh, do the Carter routine. So I did the Carter routine and they applauded and they left. And John, he looks at me and he said, you nailed Carter. You nailed Carter. Let's see if he doesn't, if he becomes president, I'll check, see you around town. He forgot that right. I told him I'm going back home on another day. But yeah, so it's a lesson in persistence and just staying in the game. Well, facing rejection too, right? Like you said that it was interesting. It's in your book and you also talked about it with no and people in sales and have their own businesses or are pitching, they hear no a lot. And so you say, does no really mean no? I always say it. No, doesn't mean no, except in dating. It just means you haven't given enough information yet. So it's the negative feedback we need to change course in our direction. That's what no is. The analogy I use is I'm a pilot, been a pilot for 40 years. When I'm flying from Phoenix to come see you down in say Tampa Bay, I'm flying off course 99% of the time. And as the plane kicks off on the GPS, it receives a negative no. And off we go. Imagine a cruise missile being launched from an airplane to a target. And all of a sudden it's off course and it gets an electronic no, and it decides to take the no personally and head back home. So what can we do as salespeople? What can people maybe starting their career? And what advice do you have for new salespeople who might be discouraged by hearing the word no? So that is definitely a prerequisite for having any success in sales. And again, understanding that no doesn't mean no. When you look at the things in the book, setting up a meeting with the president of the United States in one week, it's another lesson in persistence, you know, exactly. getting a baseball signed by the Pope, teeing it up at Augusta National. A few people have done that. Sales is uh, something that it's like speaking, Michael. I don't think there's a natural born salespeople. You have to learn it too, especially today more than ever before. You've got to be very, very professional at what you do. With that said, I see a lot of crazy offers on the internet, right? And I don't know if these people have the credentials or not, but yeah, you have to go out and you got to do it. You've got to experience a little defeat in your life and you have that one win and it kind of takes on a life of its own. And this is why I really love the term because it really is schmoozing. And just an idea, give you an example. When I'm doing an engagement, I usually about 30 minutes before the engagement, I go out in the audience and I start shaking hands, meeting people. And it helps me overcome any fear of maybe I'm feeling nervous or anxious a little bit. 
because it's easier to talk to a room full of friends. So I actually start strategically picking out key people. And I talk to them. And during my engagement, I talk often, I'll refer to them. I might look at somebody and go, well, Cody in Florida. So it looks like I know you. So I'm bringing you into the conversation, right? Into the engagement. And without fail, without fail at the end, now a lot of times companies will buy my books for their employees. But if it's an open format and people are buying their own product or whatever they're doing, everyone I go talk to will always come up and buy my books. Yeah. yeah. Because it's that relationship. So just the one thing I know. So it's about connection. And the other thing I'll do in order to form that connection connection is I got to be able to relate to you. You call it likability. I got to like you. If I don't like you, it's not going to happen, right? So how do we become likable? Is I'll show vulnerability a little bit or make fun of ourselves or self-deprecate. And I know you believe in that. That's that weakness. And you talk about as a comedian, humor and business don't always go hand in hand, but why do you think it's important to be able to laugh at ourselves and not take life too seriously? Well, I think people have got to like you. We do business with people we like, and let's face it, a sense of humor is a great weapon to have your arsenal. And I've been blessed with that. Sounds like you have too. And I don't know if that's something that you can just learn right off the bat, but I do think you can take that chin out of your chest. You can start smiling a little bit. I was at a conference not too long ago with bunch of high network gentlemen, about 200 of them. And I'm telling you, I thought when I first walked in there, I thought I was at a funeral or something. You know? And I let them have it once on the stage. And you don't have to be shecky, but you do have to kind of look at things differently. And I know this sounds elementary, but learn a couple of jokes, clean jokes, Right. Um, relevant well, stories. Yeah. 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 Our friendly stories. Absolutely. Well, you and I have both built businesses in the pre-digital age, starting back in the eighties. What do us old timers have to offer in terms of advice, say to the current world and current generations that are out there where much of the business is conducted in a virtual environment? Yeah. And I think as successful as they are, maybe in the virtual world, at least in the areas that I was working in, you get out of that virtual silo of yours and actually go out and meet and greet and, you know, network. Networking is so important. I've got a member of our family who he's doing well today, but two years ago, I mean, you couldn't get him out of his little office that he had at his house. And I mean, it didn't work and wonderful guy, wonderful personality. Well, he started getting out there and going here and going there and meeting people. And guess what happened? His business takes off. My advice is to, for anybody starting out is to back off of the internet, give it a break and really learn how to go out there and smooth, build the relationship. No, you're exactly it. And I know you have 11 grandchildren, but if you could give any advice to them, what would that be? I'm assuming that's one of the major tenets of it. Yeah, yeah. I get up there to do it. I'm grampy, by the way. Grampy. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. Okay. No, and it's getting up in front of people. And so I can't tell you how many nights I've had my grandchildren doing little acts for me and doing kinds of things. And I just sit there and I just grin from ear to ear because it really is so very important. Right. Now, as far as tracking relationships go too, things have evolved when we both started and in our work and part of the schmooze process, if you will, or the relationship building process is to remember things. And there's lots of things to remember. I use a CRM to do it. You could do it on an index card. When you and I started, that's how we did do it. Had a shoebox with index card. We'd write on the back of their business cards, the names of their kids, any bits of detail and ask them, be curious, right? And so the more curious we are, did you have any tools that you you used in order to keep track of all those relationships? Because I can't, I have seven children, my wife and I, and I can't remember all their birthdays. I have a database just helps me keep that organized. How do you keep track of all those relationships? You know what? I 
instinctively. I led the board selling cars and I looked at one of the things that I did that nobody else did. Now it's imperative and you'll be fired if you don't do it, but make sure you follow up on the customer that you call them back, what have you. I'd see these salesmen, good salespeople. They'd spend three or four hours with a customer and they would not call them back. Instinctively, I knew that I had to continue that relationship and they may have been gone from the dealership for two hours and I'd call them back and, hey, thank you for coming in. And it sounds very elementary today. Back then, nobody did it. So as far as staying uh, you know, dialed in to, to the customers, I think it's a matter of being in front of them as many times, as much as you can. So many times we try to spread ourselves too thin and give everybody equal amount of time. Well, if you've got clients that are 80% of your business, you better spend 80% of your time with those people because they're very, very important. And then I've always been a real FaceTime person. I was just on a call the other day and this guy, uh, he says, well, let's not do a Zoom. Let's just do a, a three-way. And I said, are you kidding? I said, no, we're going to do a Zoom. I want to see them. I right. think they want to see us. And right. So, well, you miss so much in the body language too. Well, the book is called Schmooze. And by the way, I love chapter 10. You've got Schmooze Essentials. So good place to start as well. The book is one of those books that you can move around through the different chapters based on what you're doing, but you've got some great stories, some great principles. What's the best way for people to find you, Cody? My website is mrschmooze.com. And if you go there, there you can leave a message and we can chat back and forth. My email is myschmooze at gmail.com. We'll have all the information in the show notes and really recommend that they find the book wherever they find their books, local bookstores on Amazon. I'm a Kindle reader, so I read mine there digitally. Otherwise, I have boxes and boxes of them. And let's leave our audience with the tagline, what your favorite tagline. May the schmooze be with you. Beautiful. Cody Lowry, Mr. Schmooze. The book is Schmooze, What They Should Teach You at Harvard Business School. Cody, it's been a pleasure. Same here, Michael. Thank you so much. My pleasure. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My production team is Beth Smith and Kendra Vickers. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting.